Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. And we've got another exciting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a chat with Christina Sikiotis from the Hunter TAFE, the project manager of Create and Innovate, and have that minute on innovation. We're also talking with Brett Gleeson from the Business Growth Centre about the importance of succession planning for your business. Right now, we're going to have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie from Baker Love Lawyers about some of those changes to the skills under the migration scheme. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. Thanks for having me on your show again. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, I know that the uh, migration law in Australia is a massive area, so we won't go into it all, but can you give us just a brief overview? Sure, Julian. It is a massive area of law, as you've identified. Some say that it's actually in line with, and that's in both complexity and volume, to the taxation laws in Australia. So it is a huge area. There have also been some significant changes to skilled migration that commenced from the 1st of July of this year. So I'll talk about that a bit later on too. But I guess the best place to start would be to say that Australia regulates its borders by requiring all non-citizens, so people who are not Australian citizens, who wish to travel here or remain in Australia to have a valid visa. So very basically, a visa is it's a right to enter or remain in Australia. So if someone enters Australia without a valid visa or remains here without a valid visa, then they can be what is called an unlawful non-citizen and they may be deported back to their country of origin. So what the government of the day does is determine the amount of people allowed to migrate to Australia by setting limits on the number of visas that can be granted each year. And then at the same time as this process, the Australian Parliament controls the types of people migrating to Australia by creating different types of visas. So currently, there are well over 100 different types of visas within Australia's visa system. And then these visas are then divided into various classes and subclasses, of which there are many. So it does become a little bit confusing, doesn't it? It uh, does. Uh, what are the, some of the different types of visas? We won't go into all 100. Uh, no. Very basically, Julian, there are four main types of visas. So the first type is what's called a permanent visa. So these visas entitle a person to remain in Australia indefinitely. And then after that, they can, if they wish, apply to become an Australian citizen. Um, there are temporary visas. So these visas authorise a temporary stay in Australia and they're usually subject to various conditions. Uh, there are protection visas and these are for people who have been granted refugee status in Australia, so they're the humanitarian type visas. And then there are bridging visas. So these allow for temporary lawful presence in Australia for someone, for example, who would otherwise be unlawful. Um, so, uh, for example, someone who's transitioning from one type of visa to another. So within these various categories, um, there are visas for international students and partner visas and family visas, just to name a few. But what I would like to concentrate on today is the general skilled migration stream of visas as they relate to businesses and skills and the employment context. Okay, so in relation to the general skilled migration, what's it about and what are the general areas that listeners might be interested in? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I'll 
start by saying that the skilled migration stream in Australia is in place to fill skill shortages in the labour market. So, of course, we'd all like to see Australian citizens participating in the workforce. However, this is not always possible. So we do rely on people from overseas to fill the gaps um, in Australia's job market and also to assist with population growth issues as well. Um, so the next step from this is to determine what actual skills or jobs are in shortage. And for this purpose, the Department of Immigration and Citizenship publishes details about certain occupations that are required to be filled in Australia. So this list is extensive and it covers occupations from technical trades to engineers and nurses and architects, a whole host of occupations and trades. So you mentioned earlier that uh, some changes came in effect from the 1st of July. What were these? Yeah, sure. Well, what the government did, Julian, was last year they conducted a comprehensive review of um, the permanent employer-sponsored program, and there was public consultation about this, and the result of this was a fairly large-scale change from the 1st of July. So the aim of the reforms was presented in terms of meeting Australia's economic needs and also responding quickly to labour market demand. And it was recognised that a more streamlined process was needed in order to respond fairly quickly um, to the short to medium term demands for specific skills. So within the general skilled migration scheme, there are some new terms that we'll all have to get used to, such as the new points-based skilled migration. Now, this means that certain attributes and qualifications of entrance um, equate to points. Um, so people, the, the more points that people get, the, the further up the line that they move to be invited to actually uh, enter Australia for working purposes. Um, there's also a new online service which is called Skill Select, and that enables skilled workers interested in migrating to Australia to record their details to be considered for a visa. Um, so what the applicant does, they submit their interest through what's called an expression of interest, um, and it, that's basically an indication that the worker would like to be considered for a skilled visa. So things like work experience, um, study, education and the level of English skills that somebody has are all rec recorded in this expression of interest and employers can then go onto that website and search through in order to find a suitable applicant. Um, also from 1 July, there's a, a more streamlined and simplified pathway for permanent residency for certain 457 visa holders, which some of your listeners may have heard of. The 457 visa is a temporary visa and it's certainly the most common one used for employers to sponsor overseas workers in Australia. And these types of visas are surging at the moment, which is good news for Australia's labour market. Um, you mentioned the online uh, service. Do you happen to know what the uh, website is there for if anyone's listening wants to go and have a look uh, well, at it? Listeners can go on to the Department of Immigration and Citizenship website. So okay. just a, a Google search for that will bring up the Government Department website. And then there's a search box where you can type in Skill Select and the link will come up. Or on the left-hand margin of that website as well, there's also links for employers and workers. So if listeners click onto that, they'll be able to then find a link to Skill Select. And, and filling in government forms is not always easy, and I gather that obviously someone would need some uh, help in order to uh, 
get through these visa applications. That's right, Julian, because it's really not just a matter of filling in forms. There's a lot of documentation associated with it. The regulations in migration law are very extensive, and I would always recommend that anyone needing immigration advice should consult with a qualified registered migration agent. Um, as I said, the regulations are very complex, and something as simple as, say, sending the visa application to a PO box as opposed to a street address can invalidate the entire application. Uh, a lot of the visa applications are online now and it's certainly moving towards that, but some of them are still paper applications. So that's just one example of the checks and balances that must be undertaken in relation to every visa application prior to it being submitted um, because, believe it or not, the requirements as to the correct postal details or the exact amount of the visa application charge, that's the fee for lodging the visa, they can and do change regularly. So you've got to make sure that you get it right the first time. Right. Well, thanks very much for your time again, Rebecca. And we'll have a chat with you another time. Thanks very much, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love Lawyers, helping us look at some of those changes that are happening in, under the migration schemes. You're listening to Business, The Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to have a chat over with Brett Gleeson of Business Growth Centre. Good afternoon, Brett. Yeah, hi, Julian. Thanks for joining us again. So uh, it's a bit wet out your way. Uh, running again, Ted. The temperature seems like it's dropped about five degrees in the last hour, so it's uh, a bit bit cool out here. Certainly, Not quite the sunny latitude we're used to. Certainly dropping at the moment. Mm. We're, we're going to talk about succession planning uh, today and the importance of it to our business. What, what, do, you, what do we mean by succession planning? I guess it's a, it's I guess a planning for the transition of the business into the future. Uh, in in a particular, I guess scenarios. Uh, and those scenarios uh, can be different for different businesses. You know, it could be a, a transition succession planning for uh, sale or uh, on retirement. It could be transition to uh, another member of the family taking over the business if it's a family-owned business. It could be a transition of a CEO uh, who's been there for a long time who needs to hand over the reins. Uh, it's you know, a whole range of... Um, of scenarios, some are positive. Uh, of those ones I spoke about are positive ones. Um, the other ones, I guess, are scenarios where um, key people are no longer there uh, at short notice uh, through things like illness, death, uh, in some cases, some cases uh, um, termination. Uh, but you have to plan for those things, mm. and uh, you've got to look at the possible scenarios that the business might face. So include that in your succession planning. So, so many businesses obviously do face succession, but very few plan. Why do they do? Why do they, do they not plan? It's it's not an easy thing to do, I guess, in in lots of ways. Uh, there's also a bit of that attitude of um, uh, it won't happen to me, it won't happen to my business. Yeah, I'm not going to get hit by a, by the proverbial bus, you know. So, uh, people don't want to think about those bad scenarios that. Um, might happen to themselves and probably even less that they actually might happen to other key people in the business. It does take a bit of higher level thinking um, and sometimes people, you know, for whatever reason, don't think they're capable of doing that. Uh, I, I guess the other challenge is that you need to set aside some quality time to work on the business uh, and and this is one good example of where you, you know, where you need some, some quality time to do that and often if you work too much time in the business then you... You know, you're you're tied up with the day-to-day operations. You don't think about what things might happen because mm. you don't want to. You, know, you don't necessarily want to contemplate it in the negative sense. But if you're planning about, you know, if you're getting into your, you know, 
real estate and you're thinking about retirement is looking like a, a nice option, then it's a really necessary thing to, to do at How, uh, how am I going to do it? <laughs> So I noticed actually yesterday there was a published that there's been an increase in six by six percent in sale of businesses. So obviously the baby boomers are getting to that stage, um, yes. and so there's obviously benefits of of doing some sort of planning. There is, and we know that in a lot of cases we talked the other day about uh, family-based businesses, and we know there's a very high percentage of that actually. Uh, don't intend to have another family member take or another family member doesn't intend to take on the business as such. So uh, what happens when it's going to be transitioned out of the family um, and what scenarios might that uh, take? The, I guess the other part of it is that, that um, it's not just... It's also things like the boardroom. Um, in For some for some businesses, uh, people in the boardroom uh, should be included in, in that um, succession planning in terms of long-standing people. Uh, and I guess the other one is, is key employees as well. You know, we don't necessarily want to think about losing very yeah. you know, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable uh, people with uh, lots of expertise that uh, you know that uh, we don't want to think about losing them. But we have to plan for that. And actually, might be yeah inevitable at some point in time. Yeah. Um, and I think people just a lot of it you know put it off because it, it is, you know, cool. can be a little bit hard. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for your time again, Brett. And uh, we may or may not have a chat with you next week, depending on whether you're around. Yes, well, well I'll, I'll have to be around in some form. Oh. Julian. No. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> I, I haven't done any personal succession planning just yet, but uh, uh, but I may be tied up in, in another engagement. I think that's what you might have meant. That's what I meant. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> At least anyway. So. so we'll have a chat with Jason if you're not around and uh, on systemising okay. a business. Good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Julian. Cheers. Bye. Brett Gleeson there from the Business Growth Centre helping us understand the importance of succession planning. Well, now it's time for our Minute on Innovation with Christina Sikiotis, the Project Manager of Create and Innovate at Hunter TAFE. Good afternoon, Christina. Hi, Julian. How are you? I'm well. And yourself? Pretty good. Bearing up under this wet weather? I, I <laughs> am. It's a little bit chilly, but, but it's not too bad. We've had a few lovely days. All right. Well, so, so what are we going to chat about on innovation today? Well, I thought I might share a few more insights this week from the webinar I listened to with Amantha Imber from Inventium. Mm. Amantha spoke about getting to the root of a problem in order to build capability. And I'd like to share the example she used with your listeners. The Washington Monument is the world's tallest obelisk. It was built to commemorate General George Washington and it also lines up beautifully with the Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol. So the apparent problem was that the Washington Monument was attracting many, many pigeons and the resulting mess from all the pigeon poop meant that really harsh chemicals were needed to clean the monument up. So using the the get-to-the-root-of-the-problem theory, instead of simply investigating a less harsh chemical to use, they went searching for the reason the pigeons were attracted to the monument in the first place. So if you can imagine our obelisk overlooking Newcastle and then imagine that many times taller, it's not exactly an inviting place for pigeons to rest or nest, not like an unused building, for example. So these root problem trackers discovered that the birds were attracted by spiders, lots of spiders, and tracking even further meant, meant that they discovered that the spiders were attracted because of the moths. And what attracted the moths? The lights that were turned on each evening to light up the monument. So the lights turned out to be the root of the problem. The solution then was to turn on the lights a few hours later, which meant less moths were attracted, which meant less spiders, which meant less pigeons. It's almost like the old lady who swallowed the bird Mm. to catch the spider to catch the fly in reverse. So this theory can be applied in all aspects of life, workplace scenarios, relationships and health. There's many people these days who believe in treating the root of the health problem and not just the symptom, for example. Yes, certainly an important thing, isn't it? We often look at the symptoms instead instead of the real causes. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's like symptoms within the workplace, you know, symptoms in health, symptoms in relationships. Mm. It, it goes across. And that's where our innovation can come in. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for your time. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Look forward to it, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christina Sikiotis there with our Minute on Innovation. And... Uh,